Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have back with me today Dr. Mike Fitzsimons, who listeners will remember from our prior episode... And he is here to talk today about a really important topic that he's uh, had developed some interest in, which is suicide among anesthesiologists. As you will remember, Dr. Fitzsimons is the director of the Division of Cardiac Anesthesia at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also the chairperson of the ASA Advisory Panel on Substance Use Disorders Prevention and leads a similar effort at Massachusetts General Hospital. A quick note that this episode will be featured at anesthesiologynews.com, so if you want to see it over there, go check it out, and while you're there, you can see they've got some really great content, they cover a lot of interesting stuff, and it's all available for free, and so I recommend checking it out, anesthesiologynews.com. I will say that the audio is going to be a little rough when you hear Dr. Fitzsimons, we had to do it uh, by phone with a microphone kind of pressed up to the phone. So you'll be able to understand him, but the audio will sound a little rough. It's going to be worse at the beginning, then it'll get a little better, but just a heads up. All right, let's get started. Mike, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I appreciate the opportunity to come back and, and speak about this. Uh, several months ago, um, actually just was six months ago now, um, Ron Harder, who's the chairperson at Ohio State University, came to me. And I had been there as a visiting professor, and he asked me if I would serve on the newly created ad hoc committee on physician suicide for the American Society of Anesthesiologists. And you know, that's how my interest in this uh, has developed recently, although when I kind of look back myself, you know, I realized over the course of my career, I've known three anesthesiologists that have unfortunately take, uh, taken their lives, and uh, you know, these were all very good people, but it's that also started to raise my interest more as to, you know, why does this occur and does it occur more often in anesthesiologists than other healthcare providers? Yeah, it's a huge, huge issue. Obviously, something we want to be really careful about and cognizant of and know how to deal with. So I'm really glad that you have taken an interest in this, Mike, and that you've come on the show to share that with all of us. So let's start by, tell me a little about the scope of this of this problem. How how prevalent is this? What do we need to be keeping in mind? How, how frequent is this happening? 
No, you know, it, it, it's a great name, and it's kind of the, the logical question there. One of the interesting things is if you historically look back, you know, as early as 1858, Bucknell published an, uh, an article in which he recognized that the population that seemed to be at very high risk for suicide was actually in physicians. So, you know, we're looking now more than 150 years ago, this was, well, this was identified as a problem. As far as anesthesiologists go, in 1968, there was an p- article published by Bruce, and they studied 441 members of the American Society of Anesthesiologists who had died between 47 and 1966. And of those patients, th- those physicians that had died, 7.9 percent had died from died from suicide. Wow. And this was followed up by a study in 2000 by Alexander, the cause-specific mortality of anesthesiologists compared with a mixed cohort of internists. And they noted that we actually had higher mortality rates from suicide, drug-related deaths, uh, and HIV. So, you know, compared with individuals that practiced internal medicine, we seem to have a higher incidence of, of suicide. And do we have any idea why that is, Mike? You know, we don't we don't necessarily have any specific idea why. I mean, we, we you know we we have thoughts and you know and, and factors that you know that that, that may contri- that may contribute. You know, we you know we know we you know for whatever reason we we seem to have a slightly higher incidence of substance use disorders. We obviously work in a in, in a stressful area in which we're not really in control of our day, probably as as much as we we would like to. You know, Alexander's study kind of asked the question, or just we more risk-taking individuals for, you know, for whatever reason. But, you know, the unfortunate truth is we really don't exactly know, you know, why anesthesiologists compared to other, you know, to other practitioners may, may, may have a little bit higher rate. I actually looked back at multiple studies of just physicians in general to see, you know, you know, to, to see if I could come up with any particular reasons why we may have a higher rate. And I actually looked at 16 studies. And again, this is not specific to anesthesiologists, but it did show some factors that may play roles in physicians that do commit suicide. And, you know, and some of the recurrent issues that we saw were, you know, individuals that, su- that suffer personal illnesses and often individuals that have conflicts at work or problems at work. Um, women seem to be a somewhat overrepresented compare, uh, compared with men. Individuals that suffer harassment at work. Those with pre-existing psychiatric issues, psychiatric dis- uh, uh, issues or other mental health, uh, mental health problems. And for whatever reason, individuals in their 40s uh, seem to have somewhat of a higher rate. Now, again, this is not specific to anesthesiologists, but physicians in general. Interesting. And so I, I want to ask you about the gender question. Traditionally, in the general population, we think that women will attempt more often, but men will be successful more often. Um, and you're saying that women are actually overrepresented in the sample you looked at? It seems that, that, that females have you know, a... a 
higher rate of female physicians have a higher rate of suicide than the than the general population maybe 140% higher and that male physicians may have a rate that's 40% higher than the general population obviously there's a lot of different studies out there but it does look like female physicians have a higher rate of uh, higher rate of, su- of suicide than the general population and male and then in male physicians too okay interesting so and now, getting back to the kind of the incidents, it's a little hard, right, at least with anesthesiologists, because you have a certain number of practitioners who, for example, might be found having died in a call room, for example, with a substance, but we don't know whether that was a suicide or an accidental overdose. Is that, no, does that you, play? You're, you're, you're very correct. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, that, that's often the case. And we just, we really don't know it. You know, is this a suicide or is an ac- a, a accidental death due to, due to an overdose? It, it's very unclear. And, you know, we don't have very good data to follow either. I, I did go through and re- found about 30 suicides among anesthesiologists and anesthesia trainees in in the literature and the internet and um you know we know that the number is a lot higher than that but a few of the factors that i found at least in looking like you know looking at the data that i did there did appear to be more males than females the average working age of these individuals was right in the 40 age range and mm-hmm. that's what studies have shown in non-anesthesiologists that uh, that that commit suicide the most common method was, uh, you know, were substances that were obtained at the at the hospital. Um, you know, meaning you know narcotics, uh, other substances. Uh, depression was somewhat com it w- was somewhat common, and you know what people notice, oh yeah, the individual had a pro- you know had a history of depression or a history of treated uh, treated depression, and then the other additional circumstances were relationship problems and and changes changes at work, including. You know, including some just dismissals from work with with changes in who was going to manage the practice. Interesting. All right. So those are important risk factors. And, you know, big ones that stand out to me from what you said are, of course, depression. So anyone who's at risk for depression, if you have a screening, we're we're soon going to be required by the ACGME, right, with our trainees to be screening to provide an ability for them to get easy screening for uh, depression uh, and other uh, potential mental health disorders. And so we really want to recognize that this is a, a big risk factor, and anybody screening positive, we should be really cognizant that this is a risk factor for this. Well, you know, the the, um, the American Medical Association, in, in, in an article they published, I think it was back in 2000 and, uh, 2003, they cited what they, you know, what they identified as risk, fa- risk factors. And you know, they said for females age 45 or older, males age 40 or older, uh, more often uh, the, a Caucasian physician. Um, and, and this is another risk factor that I've read about multiple times, and it's relationship disruption. And, you know, individuals that are divorced or, sex, uh, or separated or having marital problems uh, seem to be at higher risk. And obviously the, uh, you know, the American Medical Association pointed out factors such as depression, alcohol abuse or other drug abuse, um, excessive risk-taking, you know, those that gamble a lot or seem to be thrill-seeking in their personal lives. And then anyone with, you know, psychiatric symptoms or chronic, uh, chronic health issues. And then lastly, they pointed out, just as we mentioned, you know, changes in work status and threats to autonomy, security, finances, recent 
loss of jobs. And, you know, that kind of painted, you know, the, a, a picture of an individual that might be, you know, might be more at risk. Right. Well, all right. That's really important stuff to know. So then, Mike, how do we determine who is at risk? How do we identify people at risk? You know, this is kind of where it comes in, you know, to my opinion. And I I think is, you know, is physicians and leadership being cognizant of those factors that, you know, that might push an individual in a a direction which they could unfortunately take their life or engage in, you know, the misuse of of substances. And the, the, we actually are required to have certain mechanisms. You know, you kind of mentioned that, you know, what the, uh, what the ACGME requires, you know, is modes of recommend, you know, recognizes signs of fatigue and sleep deprivation, you know, providing individuals opportunity for, uh, for rest, you know, opportunities to attend, to attend mental and health, uh, and, uh, and health appointments, but really to point out that programs in partnership with their sponsoring institutions have the same responsibility to address well-being as they do to evaluate other aspects of resident competence. You know, so it's not just are you a good, you know, are you a good physician, but there are other factors throughout your career that, you know, that, that um, you know, that may put you put you at risk for some of these, and I hate to say occupationally acquired um, <coughs> illnesses or problem, but the truth is they very often are association with our with our occupation. You know, the um, the Joint Commission actually requires that we have processes to educate, you know, uh, about uh, independent uh, provider health. You know, and that includes mental health and substance use disorders, and also the capacity to facilitate confidential diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation of independent providers that, that, develop, that develop problems. Yeah, it's super important. And I would agree with you that, you know, we really, it's so essential that we pay attention to this. We can't just, you know, when we check in with our trainees, we can't just say, oh, I want to know how you're meeting your case logs or how you're doing on your A-line placements. We have to also make sure that just as importantly, we're checking in to see how they're doing in terms of their well-being. Are they at risk for burnout? Do they have the support that they need? Because if we neglect that part, we might have people who know how to put in an A-line but who are at risk for some very serious issues uh, above and beyond work. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and I think it's good for trainees to realize early on in their career that there are people out there that really do care for them. And that, you know, not only during residency, but even when they find their first job, second job or whatever, that, you know, one of the things they look for is a caring environment, you know, where people work together, they care for each other. And, you know, what we kind of say in our small group is, you know, if something is important to one person, it doesn't matter what it is, it should be important to the rest of us. You know, whether it's getting home to be with your child, whether it's getting to, you know, getting to a doctor's appointment, even things as, you know, as the importance of making sure you get on your flight to go to you go to a vacation. And, uh, you know, I, I think that as we, as we nurture more of those environments, maybe we'll get a better control of some of the, you know, some of these problems that occur. Absolutely. So it seems, Mike, like self-reporting must be very crucial in this. Are people doing this? Do people self-report? You know, do they? Yes. 
do enough of them? The answer is no. And, and, and I, I shouldn't necessarily say report, because I think report kind of comes with some negative connotations. But I think it's more important to people actually see uh, actually seek care. So a study done in academic medicine several years ago actually was a survey of the health-seeking behaviors of medical students. And, you know, in that survey of the individuals that responded, and there's probably a little bias in the response, but around 50% uh, – noted burnout, and almost 40% noted depression. But of those that responded, only a third actually sought care. And they sought care from multiple different areas. You know, most commonly it was family and friends, you know, followed by, you know, mental health specialists at the medical center. Uh, primary care physician was only around a quarter of those of those that sought help, and then there was other mechanisms that that, that uh, or other avenues that people pursued. Now they did ask why would you not seek care? Why would you not go and ask someone for help? And, you know, the students had a number of impressions out there. They felt that it was a sign of inadequacy or weakness. They worried that program directors, when they were applying for residency, would overlook their application if there was any indication that an individual might have a problem. And even that their patients wouldn't want them, and you know, others were afraid that actually may end up in their academic medical record. And um, you know, it's interesting. I've probably screened hundreds or even thousands of applications for residency, and I can't say that I've actually ever seen a reference to that in, in a resident application. But clearly there are worries out there about it. And then there were a few things that the the medical students said they observed. They observed others reveal their conditions to other people. They felt that others were, that individuals that had mental health or emotional issues were given fewer opportunities or that they were judged negatively by supervisors. And they even said that, you know, that individuals that had mental health and emotional issues often socialized less with colleagues and may even been invited to socialize less. So they were very they very much had fears as to what was going to happen if if they thought if they thought care. So I think that we as leaders need to develop mechanisms where people are not afraid to go out and ask for the help that they need. Yeah, that's so huge. It's you know, I heard recently uh, that we're starting to see in psychiatry residencies, they're starting to see more and more people openly disclosing on their application that they have, for example, bipolar disorder or depress, uh, major depressive disorder and are on meds and it's well controlled. So they're seeing a, a, quite an increase from even 10 or 15 years ago and people who are willing to do that. So things seem to be changing, but it's, it's so key that people feel comfortable doing that and feel, as you say, like there's no consequence for them in doing it. What about do people feel comfortable? Do we know uh, kind of letting letting the um, leadership know if they're concerned about a fellow trainee who they think might be at risk for suicide, or do people not report that? Well, you know, I when you when you look back at the study that Campbell did in 2010, and you know, this study's not necessarily applicable to every certain every circumstance out there, but you know, when they asked, you know, should physicians report? significantly impaired and competent colleagues to their professional society, hospital, clinic, or relevant authority, only about two-thirds agreed with that statement. I know we spoke about this 
you know, that this study last time you, you and I were together, but it still shows that around, for whatever reason, one-third of physicians might not actually help or, or seek care for an individual that they're actually worried about. And I think it kind of goes along with the stigma. And part of that stigma is basically, a, you know, karma. They're worried that, oh, you know what, but if this happens to me, I don't want anyone else to get in my business. So that's why I don't seek care from, uh, don't seek care from my colleague. But, you know, suicide, unfortunately, is often the end of a very long process. Certainly there's suicides that occur out there where individuals react to, you know, to a, to a bad event, to a potential malpractice case, to a bad outcome spontaneously or, you know, or, or very rapidly. But in most cases, suicide seems to be the end of a very, very long struggle for an individual. And I certainly think in many cases, people often say, well, we saw the writing on the wall, but we didn't, for whatever reason, we didn't really, fo- didn't really follow through. You know, Jeff, I want to go back to one thing you said about in psychiatry. They're seeing more individuals disclose these conditions on their applications. Yeah. You know, another area I look at is actually disabilities on uh, um, among physicians and among residents. Those that actually disclose a problem early on actually do better because because good programs actually find or develop mechanisms in which they can help our impaired colleagues. And you know, with those individuals with disabilities, those that declared early or before they started actually did a lot better than those that kind of waited until the proverbial cat was out of the bag and they had struggled significantly and then in, in some cases they're kind of um, you know it's difficult to recover that 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 lost performance time so personally I think it, it's imperative that if an individual has a challenge that they disclose that and seek help absolutely so let's talk about some possible interventions, Mike. Clearly, I think all programs out there would like to avoid this happening or certainly reduce the chances of it happening. Yeah. What are some things that people can do in terms of interventions? Okay, so great. So, so uh, the American Medical Association, in their article in 2003, basically broke things down into three different areas. You know, it's, first of all, what can the physician themselves do? What can you do as an individual? And, you know, it's imperative that we, that we have a regular source of health care. You know, every resident that comes into a program, it needs to be assured that they have a primary care, that they have a primary care physician. You know, that we educate our, our trainees and our colleagues, faculty, on, you know, signs of, of depression and suicide, and suicide, uh, suicidality. Um, you know, we all need to know what the state regulations are on confidentiality and legal protections for physicians that have disabilities. And there are protections out there. We all, you know, we are patients just like the individuals we care for. And um, from inst- from institutional levels, you know, that we need to, you know, educate our physicians and, you know, uh, your physicians and the administration about the benefit of encouraging physicians to, you know, to, to seek treatment. Uh, you know, and that medical boards need to ensure that license regulations are, you know, and practices are non-discriminatory. 
know, that institutions develop CMEs that we, you know, so continuing medical education on teaching us not only how to provide care for ourselves, but also how to recognize problems, in, you know, in, in our colleagues. And as far as research goes, kind of the third area, you know, we really, I think, need to look into, you know, broader-based studies of physicians, suicide, substance use disorders, and occupational problems among our colleagues in anesthesiology. And I mean, you know, confidential databases, they don't need to be tied into names, but certainly do it, getting the demographics and studying this and seeing what the issues are and what a successful treatment is and, you know, and following, following through on that. You know, and again, to treat a suicide very much like we treat, um, you know, like we treat a, a, a major safety issue. You know, we do a really in-depth analysis, not looking for blame, but looking for ways to improve outcomes. Yeah, I mean, we have to know what we're looking at if we're going to make a difference. Has, have there been any attempts um, to kind of put any kind of programs in place at this point? You know, yeah, there's actually been some, been some good work out there. I tell you, one of the, the, the top places is at the University of San Diego, and that was done in, you know, in response to a suicide that actually, that actually occurred there. And what they did was they, you know, they established – a, a program where they had online accessibilities that individuals could go in and kind of self-screen to, you know, to, to see if they were an individual that was at risk of suicide, depression, or burnout, and then they could refer themselves on for more care if they, you know, if, if they, if they screen positive on this. They also coupled it with with grand rounds to I can't remember but it was over twenty separate departments, but it was very much an active program to see what they you know what they could formally implement and a lot of this actually came off of what the United States Air Force had done and you know the Air Force I think in the early nineteen nineties they their leadership noticed that they had a high rate of uh, high rate of suicide. And from the leadership on down, they, impl- they implemented a program, and I think the program was officially began in '96 or '97. I, I can't uh, can't exactly remember you know remember when it started, but um, you know there were several initiatives, and the first was leadership involvement. The leadership has to support it. Education. They educated their incoming soldiers, and they educated their you know their leadership and their lower levels of leadership. You know they gave gave commanders guidelines on you know how to use the mental health services, and they even stepped out of the role of the soldiers and went into the communities and families to educate to educate on what they should be looking for. You know, they developed a, tra- you know, a traumatic stress response system. You know, when an event, would, you know, when, when a traumatic event actually occurred, and they enhanced the confidentiality. You know, so that um, you know that individuals that were identified as at risk for suicide were given increased confidentiality when they were seen by mental health pr- uh, care providers, and they made sure that that, in- that the release of that information was, was limited to who actually needed to know rather than just re- than just release in general. So I think the United States Air Force really deserves a lot of credit for the work they've done. Yeah, and it sounds like they've had some success, right? They reduced, oh, uh, d- reduced their suicide rate quite a bit. 
Yep, yep. You know, it's an absolutely wonderful program. And, you know, I think in, in, in medicine, we need to look outside of what we do in, in health care to look what's done in other, other areas of society. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, this kind of thing, just making it, uh, paying attention to it and making it acceptable to talk about, giving people the support they need, clearly has, has shown to be, uh, to be effective. And then you mentioned the uh, University of California, San Diego, uh, which also had a, a program that has shown some success as well. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you've mentioned leadership quite a bit as, you know, something that is really important that this start from the leadership on down. What are some specific recommendations you have for folks in a leadership role in terms of what they can do? Okay, well, you know, I'd say my first thing is, you know, is do what you can to actually establish an environment and a program where, where residents and faculty know where to go where they, when they need health care not only within your organization, but, you know, but widely distribute how you can get access to, you know, to the, you know, the um, Society for, you know, for, Su- for Suicide Prevention or the International Association for, uh, for Suicide Prevention, how they can get health care, you know, w- with, within their particular hospital. You know, again, as I mentioned before, that, you know, we're very fortunate in our department that we have a specific individual that we often go to in the Department of Psychiatry, and he can serve as a gatekeeper for us to get the individuals uh, the care that they need. Yeah. You know, assure that this is confidential, you know, that the, that the information is only going to get down to those that truly need the information, and it's not widely, distri- uh, widely uh, dis- uh, distributed. You know, I think that it's important to have, you know, some grand rounds and, uh, you know, and, and presentations on factors that could lead to suicide, substance use disorders, depression, burnout, life changes, and, uh, you know, to bring it forward that people, people know that we're, that we're actually willing to talk about this. And I think that one of the other very important things to do is, you know, is that leadership needs to, even though this is a, is a rare event, when it does happen, it has a tremendous impact on residents, staff members, anyone in the department, um, and Unfortunately, it, it, it can lead to others harming themselves or even even committing suicide, you know, what, what's often called clusters. And so I think departments need to have organized formal plans that if this occurs, this is what we're going to do, how we're going to get the information out what resources we're going to offer to people, how we're going to get the information about those res- those resources out. And, you know, a, you know, a, almost a, you know, a SWAT team that goes in, you know, to make sure that individuals have the support that they need. Yeah, I think that's so important because I th- when this happens, I would imagine, and I've been lucky enough not to have it happen, yeah. uh, you know, where I've been working, but certainly if it were to happen, I would imagine that the it would be, very difficult to kind of think about in the in the midst of all the grief to think about you know how to react well but just like any crisis whether it be in the OR or anywhere else you need to have a plan to react in a way that you know will will accomplish the goals you wanted to accomplish and like you said the last thing that anyone would want would be to have a failure of a response in such a way that didn't prevent a further suicide from happening so I think you're I think you're exactly right and so it sounds like, you know, what you're saying is there needs to be places should really have a plan. They should know that when someone does commit suicide, there are um, 
there is there's a risk for this kind of spreading uh, and that they need to pay attention to it and provide support not only for the people uh, in related to whoever it is who committed suicide but of course for the the faculty and and staff and residents as a whole yeah. Yeah, absolutely you know it's interesting you you bring up you know we you know what we you know, people have heard about suicide clusters before, you know, and there's two different kinds of clusters. You know, one is kind of what we call a mass cluster. And, you know, when Marilyn Monroe committed suicide in the 1960s, I think in the first month after her suicide, the number of suicides actually increased around 12 percent. Hmm. And um, but, you know, but that's not the first incidence of it. Um Actually, in 1774, Goethe published a book on the sorrows of young Werther. And it was about a young man that took his life after falling in love with a woman that was beyond his reach. And shortly after this was published, it was a very popular book, a number of young men throughout Europe committed suicide. And they were often dressed as young Werther did and even carrying the book. So, you know, some countries actually even banned the book at the time. Hmm. And, uh, you know, why do I speak about that? Well, uh, some people say that we're trying to hide this problem, and I don't think that's true at all. You know, I, I think that institutions are doing everything they can. You know, we have a lot of good educators throughout this country that, you know, this doesn't occur very often, and when it does, you know, it creates a lot of chaos, though. And you know, the, the media doesn't necessarily report on suicides, and for very good reason. In fact, the International Association for Suicide Prevention and the World Health Organization have even printed guidelines for the media to hopefully prevent this suicide contagion or copycat out there. And, you know, they, you know they, they say many of the things that we say also. It's important to educate the public, but not sensationalize and certainly not normalize this. You know, they, they don't place suicides very prominently in the newspaper. Um, and, they, you know, it's important to avoid explicit description of what the event was. And, um, you know, obviously to use caution and photos and videos. And, you know, they say take particular care in reporting a celebrity suicide. And I think it's especially important, you know, for a very – if unfortunately a very popular physician or someone in an apartment commits suicide, you know, just to realize again that that may even have more of an impact. And, um, you know, it's especially important again that to provide information where individuals can actually get the help that they need. Absolutely. All sounds really important. And I would imagine that at a time, if there were to be a suicide, that you'd want to really be paying attention to anyone you'd identified as high risk around that time. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, I, again, I, I've, I've been very impressed. I, I think that the, um, you know, we certainly have very good leaders in our department. I, I've met the leaders down, you know, at your institution at Hopkins and, you know, I have very, very, very good leaders out there and, you know, and, and, care is available and careers believe me careers go on and you know individuals that are you know that have survived many of these changes uh, you know changes in life changes in in employment depression burnout they can serve as great resources for others that end up you know ended up struggling struggling with these problems and uh you know, we have a lot of very, very valuable people out there that can serve as, you know, educators based upon a lot of their experience. Absolutely. 
Mike, anything else you think we should cover uh, on this topic before we finish? No, you know, I, I, I think that um, I think we've kind of covered everything. But, you know, I think the important thing is, look, help is out there. Um, you know, the Society for Suicide Pre- Prevention has a lot of tremendous resources. But, you know, but the important thing, the American, I'm sorry, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, a lot of great information on their on their website. And, uh, you know, I think the important thing to know is, you know, is, is, is that help is available out there and we are absolutely willing to help. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the big messages, uh, certainly there's a a suicide prevention video that has um, some physician uh, that is geared toward physicians that we show to our trainees every year. But, you know, I think one of the big messages there is if you're worried about somebody, say something. You know, I I think it's just so crucial. You don't want to find out that, you know, someone actually was going to commit suicide and you were suspicious and worried about them, but you didn't say anything. Uh, So I think that's a, a hugely important message to take forward as well. Absolutely. Again, the other thing is, you know, is irregardless of suicide, you know, the issues of depression, burnout, uh, you know, those, you know, we need to continue to, to address those and work on those, though. Absolutely. Mike, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Okay. Thank you very much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Really important topic. I hope everyone is out there trying to be as cognizant as they can of any potential risks of anyone who might be at risk so that we can really reach out and help people when help is needed and prevent this uh, as much as we possibly can. And I really appreciate uh, Mike coming on the show to talk about it. If you have comments, things you think we could add, things you think we should keep in mind, please go to the website, ACRAC.com. You can leave a comment and others can learn from whatever you have have to say. You can, of course, reach me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. And if you are a fan of the show and you haven't already, or even if you have and you haven't done it for a little while, uh, please consider going to iTunes, uh, where you can leave a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you are interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. And, of course, if you prefer, you can go to paypal.me slash ACRAC. That's paypal.me slash A-C-C-R-A-C. And you can make a donation individually or anytime you want using that link if you prefer. Thank you so much to everyone who already become a patron or made a donation we really appreciate it and a huge thank you of course also as always to brian park for the outlines he's done for many of the episodes all right thanks so much for listening that's it for today the one thing i would add is that if you're out there and you feel like you might need help please reach out reach out to someone at your institution reach out to someone at home reach out to anyone who you think you could reach out to for help But it's just so important to realize that you are valued. And no matter how hopeless things may seem right now, they will get better. Just reach out for help if you need it. And if anyone out there knows somebody who they think might need help, don't wait. Don't put it aside. Let someone know so that person can get the help they need. Way better to be wrong than to realize too late that you were right. All right. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. For Dr. Mike Fitzsimons and the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... 
Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.